0: This is a conversation with Adam Green, a professor in the Department of Psychology at Georgetown University and the current lab director for the Lab for Relational Cognition. He has studied at Dartmouth, Cornell, John Hopkins and Yale University and it was really a pleasure speaking with him today. The timestamps for this video can be found below so you guys can skip around to whatever topics you find most interesting, but of course, I encourage you to listen to the thing all the way through as all the ideas build upon each other. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Professor Adam Green. Enjoy. Start recording and let's go. Three, two, one. Professor Adam Green, welcome to Max Depth. Thank you, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Max. Appreciate the invitation. Um, All right, so let's start off with uh, a big question. Um, Do you think that self-consciousness, metacognition, access consciousness, subjective experience the experiencing of qualia and thinking about thinking can be explained with neuroscience (laughs) explained
1: well you know it's interesting when you explain is a tough word boy that's a tough standard for science and and if you think about um uh even what we think about as sort of the, the most core uh science which would be physics i would say um Physics, even if we're talking about classical physics, even if we're not talking, so so even sticking to Newtonian physics before we even get into the quantum weirdness, right? Um, People have a, people I think make the mistake of saying that we're explaining things, Um, where actually we're describing things, right? So it is true that we can just, that we can predict where the moon is going to be in, you know, 87 days from now right? Um, Or or in in its orbit around, uh, you know, the the earth and and where the earth is going to be in its orbit around the sun and and, and all of that. And that's because of this thing called gravity, right? And gravity has to do with the mass of a body, right? But why? Like, why is it that massive bodies attract other bodies? Like, what is that? Is that an explanation? Are we actually explaining even, even at that most sort of fundamental level of, of where science um, is applied to a system, you know, of, and the, the, I'm just pointing to something that's, that's quite long standing and sort of taken as um, bedrock science, even that isn't really an explanation. It's a description. Mm-hmm. Why gravity? Explain why gravity. That is not what, what, you know, it might, you could imagine an alternate universe where massive things don't attract other, other things. It didn't have to be the case, um, but I suppose it is. And so uh, we, 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 as scientists, we describe it. And so um, I think when you get into questions of, you know, looking at the brain as it relates to um, various cognitive phenomena, uh, I think that's one element of, I guess, humility that that's important to bring in uh, to, to, those, uh, to those questions. Um, we, at best, are describing well. I don't think we can claim to be
0: explaining. Um but you know when so sorry sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Do you do you think it would explaining be describing the system that like the structure of the system that results in what we're describing? Well, I think that's a good way to predict, right? It's a good way to to
1: to allow for predictions, right? So I could say um you know, I could see you you could say well this happened and We use the word because and, and the more that we, we use the word because the more it sounds like we're explaining um, and there's there are levels of explanation. So, I mean, I think, to be fair, there are levels at which we can explain like, well, this happened because neurons in the ventral tegmental area were firing. Right. And, and, and that that's a sense of like, OK, so, you know, he fell over because I pushed him. Well, OK, that's true but why did, why, why did you push it, right? Like that, so, so there, there are levels. Yeah.
0: Yeah. which level of analysis are you choosing to describe or attempt to explain?
1: Right, I mean, which level of description, right. At, at, at which level of description are you operating when you're explaining, exactly. And so, um, yeah, so again, I, I don't mean to, you know. Uh,
0: no, I think it's a worth, worthwhile thing to talk about.
1: Yeah, but, you know, so to that extent, I think we are learning a lot about uh, about cognitive phenomena and cognitive processes uh, that relate to different models of what different people want to call consciousness um, through the use of uh, neuroscientific methods. Um, and you know, one of the things that's that's interesting in neuroscience is the ability to disrupt processes in the brain and, and look at changes in consciousness. And you know, certainly. Um, uh, there, there, there's evidence uh, of various sorts uh, related to, to neural intervention, including, um, you know, pharmacological work looking at, you know, loss of a sense of self. If, if that's what you're, uh, one of the one of the consciousness constructs you brought up is sort of uh, self and, and and sort of a feeling of of self that uh, with um, pharmacological intervention um, seems like psilocybin, for example, uh, seems to um abate that sense uh what that means and 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 you know sort of the the weight that we want to give to those uh subjective uh reportings of of sense i mean i i I have no reason
0: to think that they aren't real um
1: but uh
0: it also it also depends on what your definition of real is because i mean if we're uh like if you're taking the materials view i guess that um that this brain is some sort of complex mechanism of dealing with it's it's even it's difficult to talk about any, anything related to this field, because it's like, if I say the term external world, you could debate external world. Um, but like different, like your brain is in a specific chemical balance, I like broadly. Um, and then when you're ingesting these substances, it changes your own chemical balance. And it's like you're still looking at the same thing, just in a new way. So it's not not it's not like you're high, it's that you're looking at the world with a different chemical balance in your brain.
1: Sure, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's, that's right, and I think where you're going with the um, sort of pushing on that distinction between the external world and and, and the internal world, I think is, a, is another important direction to consider and, and you know really to to remember uh, what we've I guess always known but which but what's become clearer in really thinking carefully about quantum mechanics, which is that ultimately the observer uh, is made of the same stuff, is part of the same system. Uh, as as whatever is being observed um, and so uh, you know I think understanding that as it relates to consciousness uh, and the you know largely related notion of free will um, becomes very important uh, as we as we sort of ponder <laughs> whether any physical system uh, can have freedom right and and what that would mean um, both in terms of the uh, so, well, you, I guess you could start with the, the classical physics uh, notion, the, the Newtonian physics, uh, that, all right, well, if we know all of the physical preconditions, right, then we could, with enough computing power, we could predict everything that's about to happen, you know, with complete certainty.
0: a um, final physics.
1: Right. Uh, and that, you know, so, so there's, I, I would say it would be extremely hard to argue for any, any free will in that, in, you know, in, in that framework. But we know that that framework is wrong, right? So we know that the world is, or that the universe, as much as we can know anything in two thousand twenty-two. You know, uh, maybe you know a, a thousand years from now, there, there's there's a different framing that we know is right. But uh, we know the world uh, and the universe is quantum. It's not it is not Newtonian. Um, so we can at least leave that behind. That uh, you know. If I know everything that's true about the, you know, every physical precondition that I could, I could predict what's about to happen. Can um, you give me
0: some characterizations of the quantum world?
1: Oh, well, sure. I mean, uh, there's, we know, you know, initially, right, that if you, uh, I mean, from some of the early experiments that um, photons and electrons are um, in multiple, you but, depending on how you want to frame it, and the language gets very tricky, but um, multiple states uh, concurrently, um, and can potentially interact, you know, interfere with themselves, you know, you you have the the classical, like double slit experiment, I I, I don't know how much you're familiar with, with, with that sort of uh, aspect of, uh, you know, the history of science, but um, the, the notion that if if there's uh, if, if you have two slits uh, and you uh, uh, in say a metal screen and you're shooting photons through uh, the the metal screen, uh, if even if you're shooting them one at a time, <laughs> and this is where it gets trippy, uh, even if you're shooting them one at a time, uh, there will appear to be waves that come out, um, which is to say that uh, the um, whatever went through the, um, the the screen the slits actually interfered and it's very difficult to understand how something could interfere with itself uh, other than um, to frame it as the the photon actually went through both slits. Um, And uh, the same is true with electrons uh, as opposed to the the, obviously the, the, the funny caveat here, not funny, the world bending caveat here is that it whether that event is observable. Um, wh- whether the you know so if if, if it is observable and and observation is a very tricky thing. This is not. I am far from uh, an advocate for a view where there's something mystical and magical about co- about human consciousness that that changes uh, reality. Um, but there. But it is accepted fact in quantum mechanics that. And again not referring specifically to human consciousness but simply to observability um, that if that event is observable um, then you actually see dots not waves so essentially the, fo- the photon went through one slit not both if if the event was observable but if the event was not observable then it actually went through both slits right so these are some of the things some of the, the many things I mean, that doesn't even get us into quantum entanglement, um, but uh, some of the many things that we know we, we know essentially that uh, the what's what our brains are are built of because what everything is built of is um, is physical stuff behaving in in quantum mechanical ways, and so uh, that's very different from the Newtonian notion that would sort of rule out any possibility of. Free uh, of well uh, of free will, you might say. Well, okay. So what are we left with uh, on the quantum side? We're left with essentially randomness, right? Where we're wave functions for the positions of things. Um, That is, uh, you know, if we're if we're thinking about our behavior as being guided by randomness, um, that doesn't feel very free either. I don't think that's the kind of free will that a lot of us really hope we're really rooting for. You know, um, but I think the third thing, and and an important thing to say, uh, a very important thing to say, is that we know it's quantum, but we don't. But there is a tremendous amount that we have not yet even described, much less explained, about uh, quantum mechanics. So to say that a thing is uh, is physical, to say that that uh, to take a materialist view. Um, which I think almost all neuroscientists, myself included, would do uh, to say that it's physical uh, as a way of somehow, um, uh, you know, eliminating the possibility of, of free will. I think I, I think the case for free will is pretty grim in the, in the way that we want free will to look. But I don't think the case is closed because I think that would be really overestimating what we know about physics. I think to say that because it's physical, it's explained um, or understood um, and therefore that we could rule out something like free will or something that is a bit more free than just pure randomness um,
0: is, it would be maybe somewhat hubristic probably. I take the view that free will almost isn't even a worthwhile argument or discussion to have because our entire society and law structure is predicated on us having free will. So, if it were the case that we didn't have free will, then you could make the argument that I was like it was determined that I was going to murder that person, um, and and we we act like we have free will. So, even if we didn't, I think it's I, I don't think it's of utility, and that's that's one question that I've kind of been grappling with recently is the is the distinction or the relationship between truth and utility or practicality like for a while i was obsessed with this notion of um of like a a personal reality like a like a construct of the world and like a true external world that we don't really have access to limited by our cognitive capability and our senses and that and i was just like uh obsessed with this idea that like kind of based on what I the little bit I, I knew about string theory and that I knew that the math worked in 11 or 26 dimension dimensions basically that the world that we're interacting with isn't really what it appears to be and it might not be still but I've kind of moved on past that idea because it didn't get me anywhere it wasn't of any utility to me so even if that is the case it's not really worth obsessing over or, or or incorporating into your model of the world because it's not of any utility to you.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great thing for, uh, for people in general to, to ponder. And, 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 you know, I, I think certainly for uh, college, you know, college aged folks who are, who are determining kind of w- what's going to really motivate me, right? Like w- which direction am I really interested in exploring? Uh, and so I think if you... I, I I think it honestly it it it's an aesthetic question as much as it is anything else that I think that the sort of there, there's an aesthetic and a, and a beauty to um to pure to, to sort of knowledge for for the sake of knowledge um for, to pure research as, as 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 sometimes referred to um and that might be so so if if that aesthetic right like you you could argue. You know what good does a symphony do, right? Like, but and what good does it, you could also argue for for the many wonderful things it does. You know, because it it, it engages and, and it excites and it or it, or it you know uh, evokes. You know, I I I think on the um on the question of sort of pure research or research that may or may not have applicability um to uh in a, in a sort of utilitarian way. I, I think it's a great thing just. In speaking to a college student to 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 hear that um that sort of churning because uh, I think that is 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 really important, uh, especially for sort of a um a scholarly uh, or 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 academic just uh, you know future uh, to determine whether what you want to do is chasing knowledge as such versus chasing knowledge as a apl- as applicable. Um, and so uh, i you know. That said, there's a long history of pure research um, having, in in most cases, unintended, but uh, it, but nonetheless, uh, you know, real-world um, applicability. Uh, and I think that there is a um, there's a case to be made um, that at that, that at the intersection of uh, quantum interpretation and actual physical reality. Um, it may not be impossible um, that there will be ways of um, ways of uh, applying um, the observer or what is what is uh, learned about or or what is eventually understood about the observer uh, to um, reality itself. Uh, you know that that is not a place that we are yet. But I don't know that it's that that's uh, you know, another uh, another sort of direction where I would say it would be hubristic to rule that out at this point. Um, so uh, but but I think, you know, the broader question of um, how much uh, these questions are applicable um, is, again, it, it is a, a really good one, but uh, but one that we should go into with a bit of humility.
0: I love that. That's what a lot of uh, the people that I've talked to have, because I mean, I'm a 19 year old kid, like, I'm confident and arrogant in nature. At least I can say that I have enough humility to say that. Um, But one thing that I've been learning from the people that I'm talking to is, there's a hell of a lot we don't understand. And it's okay for you to ask these big questions, but understand that a lot of a lot of this is like new research and that we don't know the answers to and that a lot of what I'm saying like could be falsified in, in coming years. So I just, I like the, it seems like science in general has like an overtone or an undertone maybe of humility, which is just
1: I mean, great. I think it should. I think it should. And I think the other, I don't know that it always does, but I, I, I think it should. And um, the other sort of point to make there though is I, I think sometimes, you know, humans have this, um, this, this long history of, you know, the gods of the gaps, right? And so essentially making too much of what it is that we don't know, right? To, and essentially saying, well, if we don't know this, then I'll go ahead and assume that it's actually this, right? That, so I can, I, can, I can fill in that gap in science with something supernatural, or I could fill in this gap in quantum mechanics with free will. And, and and that's that's what I would caution you against is that if I'm saying well there's a lot about free will, a lot about quantum mechanics that we don't understand and that does that allows that maybe does not yet allow us to ring the you know the, the death knell uh, for um, free will. It's not a way of saying that somehow free will is hiding in there. It's just to say that we haven't we haven't been able to uh, prove that it isn't yet. Uh, but I think that that's an important thing to resist. Is is to go ahead and claim whatever we want to be true whenever we find incompleteness.
0: Is it romantic or naive to try to? Ext- um, so, in like the quantum mechanical view of the world, everything seems relational. Um, is it is it a jump to say like is the is the entire world relational? This is this goes into like the subject observer problem which is also like which is a problem in like a lot of different examples like the idea of like metacognition itself so it's like you have this model of the world and then you are like you're thinking and then you're also thinking about the thinking so it's at the same time you are the observer and the per- perceiver um yeah so I, I just wonder i don't know what the i don't actually know where i'm going with this line of thought well, no i mean i think um,
1: it brings us back to consciousness in some, in, in some ways, or at least I can give you my thoughts there. So I I think, you know, consciousness is this, uh, consciousness is a word is what consciousness is. And, and, and consciousness is a word. Yes, it is a word. And, and when I I say that with a bit of disdain only because, um, we can say a lot of words, right? Like we can say, we, we can say unicorn, you know, it doesn't mean that we can that, that somehow there, therefore, because we could say it or imagine it, uh, that the universe is obliged to deliver it up for us as this real thing that exists. Right. Um, and, you know, I think we we invest a lot in looking for what we call this word that we came up with as consciousness, this sort of construct. But there was never any a priori you know uh agreement with the universe that that the things that we imagine should be you know can be delivered up that the constructs that we imagine are real um actually are are manifest in the ways that we at least not at perhaps not at all and, and and certainly not in in the ways that we uh sort of uh, imagine them and so uh I think that's the, that's a place to start and I think that actually applies to a lot of the ontology of uh Human cognition. I think we have to be very careful that just because we can we can think of some kind of thinking or some kind of feeling uh, that that it, it actually exists. Um, but I do think, right? I think there's a, a good case to be made for something very much like what you're describing that um, the awareness of awareness, right? That 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 this is something that humans do, and, and there's a few different models for. Um, what this might look like, and actually goes back to John Locke, actually, uh, you know, and perhaps earlier, but um, the notion of um, our awareness or, or meta-awareness of our experience uh, and, 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 and of being aware. Uh, that, I think, um, is a phenomenon that has some evidence behind it, um, and that I think an important thing to, to keep in mind there is that, it's not at all clear that that would be unique to humans. There are a lot of artificial intelligence systems already that can achieve things like that. Um, and so if we decide that that is ultimately the core of, of consciousness, um, then I, you know I, I, which I think is, is not an unreasonable case to make. Uh, but again, I think it's, it might be unreasonable that the expectation is to tether any of these models to this word, right? Um, because it's, that that may just be sort of an artificial, (laughs) an artificial element that was never there in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it it might not be, you know, our obligation to somehow make our models, you know, connect it, send some over some line that connects the dots of our model to that dot. Um, But if uh, that was uh, what we wanted to call consciousness, then I think um, we have to very much acknowledge that that's that's not something that that's that only human
0: brains can do. How in which artificial systems can have an understanding of themselves?
1: Well, right. I, I mean, I think that depends on. Well, I, I think the language matters here. So, I mean, I think, yeah, and
0: that's a good point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of systems, even you know, not even particularly modern uh, AI, uh, can sort of observe its own actions. Um, check its own responses uh, and um, monitor its own states. And so I think that those, you know, those elements. Um, now, now, so the, the question is, and I think this becomes um, the, the sort of sticking point in many cases is the, the phenomenology, right? The, the like, um, is that machine having some sort of experience Right. And is that experience of checking our own states, um, what we want to call consciousness. That gets really mucky because it is not an answerable question. Right. So how 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 do we define uh, an experience? How do we define or or how, how do how do I say with any certainty that I am that my experience, the phenomenological experience I'm having is qualitatively different? From the experience uh, that is, you know, re- represented or, or happening within um, some some AI systems, some some broader um, you know uh, social group, or uh, you know, there are many ways that you could define or um, sort of put boundaries around what the observer is uh, or what the the sort of experiencer or conscious entity is. Um, and that's where I think we start to get, I, that's where I, frankly, I think it, it starts to be a less productive conversation. Um, and so, you, you know, I think that's, I find that as kind of like a, a bastion for people who find it more beautiful to leave it unexplained. Um, and, and that's fine too, by the way. I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to aesthetics. So, you know, are you more interested in, in pragmatics or pure research? I think that has to do with, with aesthetics. I think whether or not people want, um, and now I'm using explained, um, but really I should say described, whether you want um, science to be able to describe uh, you know, the mind uh, is something that I think really is just, and I, I'll pull my, um, my undergraduates in, in a class of maybe 30 or 40 people and I'll ask them this question. Uh, and it's about half and half about half of the people find it more beautiful to be able for, for science to come up with uh, to, to sort of um, see what's underneath right to, to see what makes it work and 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 to describe that uh, and for that to be accessible to science and about half of the people find it more beautiful or more they, they're rooting for um, it to be a mystery that the mystery part of it to them is you um, is something they value. Uh, you know, I obviously probably pretty easy to guess which side of that divide I'm on. I'm, you know, for it's what I do for a living is I try to describe uh, the mind in, in terms of the brain. And to me, all you know the the notion that it that it could be built, that all of this fascinating stuff that we do and feel and think uh, that, that it can be built of physical stuff that is mind blowingly beautiful to me. And so, uh, that's, that's the aesthetic as I, as I experience it, that's, it's my aesthetic. It's not to say that other people should feel the same way. Um, but it's, you know, renewably radical to me that, that, you know, joy is made of physical stuff, uh, or, or pain or, or anything else, uh, you know, all of these sort of ephemeral, uh, things that go, that, that are, that are elements of mind, um, whereas right i think other people really feel in some in some way feel it as a as a threat and I, and i think that's some sometimes kind of a misunderstanding um but i think some some of it is just sort of a a, a native sense of aesthetic that that just differs between people
0: i think those questions themselves are an antidote to nihilism hmm. like they are so they're such important and beautiful questions that you could think about them for a lifetime and it doesn't really matter about anything else. That's just the fact that you can even thinking of, think about them is See, now you're,
1: now you're sounding like a pure, like someone who doesn't care about the, the applicability, right. About, about the utility. I go back and forth. Yeah, that's okay. That's where you should be as a, as a freshman or as, as a sophomore or, 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 or maybe as an 80 year old, but
0: yeah. Yeah. I wonder, do you think on, on this idea of building AI, do you think, okay. So, Sometimes people talk about consciousness as an emergent property. Then then other people will say, okay, an emergent property is really just a term to describe something that you don't understand, like a gap in understanding. It's like the argument is if a system is sufficiently complex, then some sort of uh, everything that we've been talking about, self un, self-awareness um, emerges. So... I guess the question, my question is, do you think that we're going we to keep building AI um, the way we are um, to, will, will the AI we're currently on the path towards developing eventually develop like self-consciousness or will there need to be a fundamental leap? But we've kind of also are, uh, already stated that that's kind of a mute point because we will never know because of the subject observer problem.
1: Uh, you're going to have to reframe that. You're going to have to walk me through the, the, the key, the kernel of the question there.
0: Yeah, so I was just asking, like, if we keep building m- a more and more deep neural nets with more and more parameters, will something like consciousness ever arise? Or is there something special about consciousness? But I think we may, be, might be a little bit too deep in this conversation for that to be the question because we've already posited that the experience of self-consciousness is, is subjective and hard to define and impossible for a human to know if an artificial system is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would go, I would take that the other direction. I, my sense is that at least for, for, for my likings and and, and, and by my standard, I would say that um, what we can determine about, you know, again, we get stuck on this word, but, but uh, I, to me, what I what I think of as kind of the, the core box that you have to check uh, to call something consciousness would be awareness of awareness, right? That that sort of meta awareness. Um, and in that sense, I think lots of uh, artificial uh, entities already already do that to to at least some extent. So uh, to me, it's not a question of whether we will eventually, you know, be there. It's it's I I think that's something that could be argued for. Uh, right now, um, and you know, I think the, the ex- but but I think the experience side, yeah, becomes, uh, and the phenomenological side uh, becomes much, you know, much less satisfying to me as as a scientific question. And, and again, maybe that's just my
0: own aesthetic. Okay. Uh, do you want to move on to creativity? Because yeah. that's totally interesting to me. I read this book called Stealing Fire. Um, and it was a whole bunch of different ways, uh, top performing teams and companies Google, uh, like Google Na- uh, Navy SEALs are using different um, mechanisms, I guess, or tools to enable great greater creativity, uh, increase instances of like flow states, some being pharmacological, um, some being like meditation-based, I guess, generally like using meditation is like a big word. Um, and then some using like, Uh, brain stimulation techniques so um could you tell me about what you're doing using brain stimulation techniques for uh increasing conscious states because that's so freaking cool
1: i mean creative states yeah creative states
0: sorry creative states yeah um how cool is that first of all
1: it's amazing well like i mean my sister says i'm a mad scientist you know she's obviously you know she's a, a creative person she's a A well-known poet, and 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 you know she 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 would never let me anywhere near her brain, Um, but uh, I, um, you know, I think that uh, the so this this may again come back to people's sort of aesthetic and comfort level. I love the idea, love the idea, get really excited about the idea that if we can describe again, not so much explain, but describe the brain well enough not perfectly but well enough then we know enough to intervene and alter the function in predictable ways yes right um and so that's true i mean that's the history of pharmacology many many of the drugs that work we don't understand why they work at least not um you know when when they're first in, in use um we are in a somewhat similar place where we know enough about mechanism um to effectively intervene uh, in neural systems through a number of different stimulation modalities, um, including uh, transcranial direct current uh, stimulation, um, transcranial alternating current stimulation, which causes which entrains certain frequencies uh which uh, entrains
0: frequencies. certain frequencies
1: so it basically gets so, so if you've ever looked at like eeg output where the w- brain waves brain waves mm-hmm. right brain waves and, and so uh if you look at at brain waves they 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 operate you know that they show a certain frequency right and so you can get you can change that frequency you can get them to do uh to sort of uh adhere to a frequency Based on uh, the the frequency that you're uh, pulsing in, um, another method is uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation using uh, elect- electromagnetism in really focused ways. There is a there's actually several more uh, that uh, approaches that are that are being developed both in terms of optogenetics um, and optogenetics. So using light to turn on and off. Uh, genes, basically, Gene, so, so that genes are are being expressed or not um, by uh, shining, essentially, shining light uh, on, onto chromosomes. Um, Holy but, shit! Yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, focused ultrasound, which um, transcranial focused ultrasound, which is a method that I think is going to be really exciting, uh, but it's, it's sort of just at the very beginning stages uh, to alter uh, neuronal function, and essentially. Right. One of the things that's fascinating, uh, Max, that I think is is maybe useful to, uh, well, really anybody who's who's kind of interested in the development of neuroscience and kind of where we are in neuroscience is that we're getting to this point now, where uh, which I'm very excited about, where um, we're transitioning more and more um, from just observation, looking at things like you know just EEG, like I was bringing up more recently. Uh, a lot of work has been done um, with neuroimaging, positron emission tomography, and especially uh, functional MRI, looking at um, essentially, you know, uh, tracking blood flow in the brain. A lot. Of Is that, that what
0: fMRI does? Track blood flow in the brain? Essentially, okay.
1: that's that's cool. basically. Yeah, looks at where blood goes because blood has certain magnetic properties. Oxygenated versus deoxygenated mm-hmm. blood. Oxygen has magnetic properties, so you can track. You know, obviously, when blood comes from the the, the lungs and, and, and heart, then it's got oxi- more oxygen in it. And when it's, mm-hmm. when it's leaving, it, it's got less. So um, that is, uh, so, so those methods have been applied, but those are all observational methods, right? Um, and there's been a lot of criticism in the last like 15 years as fMRI has really kind of become the, the predominant measure. Um, a lot of criticism of like, okay, so we, we can look at it. We can see what lights up right? Yep. So what, what does that actually teach us, right? Like, what do we know that we didn't already, uh, that, that we couldn't have found out without your multi-million dollar devices and your multi-million dollar grants and, and, and all of that? Um, and I, it, it, that's always been a bit unfair, because essentially, that's like, to, to a certain extent, saying, well, like, what good is it to, you know, uh, to, to have a map, right? Like, well, it's it not, in and of itself, having a map, isn't all that important, right? But once you start to be able to use the map, right? And, and this is where we are now starting to, to, to get, uh, starting to arrive is, okay, so we've we, we, we've done a fair bit of observing now and we can understand, for example, in the case of creativity, um, work in my lab over an eight or so year period, uh, well actually work that, that started even before I, I had my own lab, um, but when I was a, a grad student and a postdoc, um, looking at uh, changes in the brain that support increases in creative thinking. So how it is that that a brain? There's been a lot of research on how different people, you know, what makes it, what what are the differences between different brains of people who say are more versus less creative? And that's fascinating. It's really interesting. It doesn't do a whole lot for any individual person who might want to become more creative, right? Mm-hmm. And, more interesting to me into my lab has been the question of creativity as a state mm-hmm. right and how uh, a person can go from thinking less creatively to thinking more creatively um, and so we've done a lot of work with fmri to look at what changes in the brain when i ask you to think more creatively and what change which of which changes are actually predictive of you succeeding at thinking more creatively uh, and using that um, evidence that observational evidence Has taught us okay first of all where what lights up right okay sort of a just you know basic science question at least until you start to apply it but not just where um uh when and uh what what is it connected to um and do acute changes uh that is to say changes that happen quickly do they impact behavior are they related to how how creative you're going to be and also An important point in the brain is to understand that changes aren't always, you know, more is not always better. So we observe changes. Well, depending on the modality of the intervention, we might need to look for places where uh, a decrease improves something or modalities for modalities that increase. activity in a brain region. We might need to look for changes in the brain where uh, an acute increase is related to an improvement in performance. So just to take the example of some of the work that we've done in the lab, although we have a lot more that's happening now that's um, a a bit more sophisticated, but some of the initial work looking at um, changes in the brain where an acute increase in activity predicted improvement in creative performance. So now we know where and we know how it's it's behaving. So we know kind of the, the dynamics of it. And those those uh, elements of observational information allow us to identify a methodology that would be effective for intervening and know when and how to apply it. Right. And so um, now we go from the like just observing from just having the map to applying it to starting to, to uh, use it. And so um, that's where we were then able to look at okay a, a region of the brain in fronto pol- in the very far front of the brain called frontopolar cortex where uh, increasing activity is uh, related to uh, successfully improving your creative performance so we then reasoned that if we apply a, a neurostimulation methodology called transcranial direct current stimulation that would make it easier essentially for neurons in that region of the brain to fire that we might be able to help people become more creative on purpose. So actually to be more successful when they're trying to be creative. Um, And so that was the basis of the first uh, creativity neuromodulation study that we did. And and we found that that they were that um, both in uh, a verb generation task and an analogical reasoning task where the idea is to find more creative connections between different concepts uh, that people who were zapped um, were uh, and were asked to think more creatively, um, they were more successful when they tried to think more creatively. Their their, their uh, creative performance was greater than if they were just asked to think creatively, but not uh, you didn't facilitate the firing of the, the neurons in that region. So I bring that up as a specific example of some of the work that, that we've done, but more broadly, just to point to, okay, so why does it matter what lights up? Well, it matters because now we know where uh, to direct uh, n- n- this stimulation and 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 the dynamics, the temporal and spatial dynamics of uh, the activity that we that we're seeing, all of this informs how we can then intervene in the system. Um, so we're going from observation to intervention um, more and more now, and, and I I think that's really exciting.
0: I'm glad you touched on um, the two specific tasks: the verb generation and the. Connecting diverse ideas. Because I was going to ask what the metric was, the metric you were using to define creativity was. And I think that answered that question pretty well.
1: Well, yeah. And and actually, a lot of those, um, that research and and a lot of the research that we've done in the lab uh, has been um, focused on semantic distance as a metric of creativity, which is essentially using uh, these big, big databases of millions and millions of books and you know uh articles uh from many many online sources and movie subtitles and all, all, basically everything you can find that's written in english and pouring them into these these huge um aggregations and essentially looking at their context usage uh, which is kind of a how they're used with each other or not frequently used with each other as a way of mapping out a big space, a semantic space for a language, so that I know that the word baseball, you know, is pretty far in semantic space from asparagus, right? Whereas it's a lot closer to something like glove. Um, and so, uh, once I map out that huge space, that that high, high, high-dimensional space, I can now look at the distances between different words within that space. Um, I can also look at cool things which we're starting to do now look at cool things like how people travel through that space when you ask them to, ge- to generate ideas um, that is so cool
0: how are you doing that
1: yeah it's something we're calling shape of thought and it's really Holy f-
0: <laughs> that is so romantic
1: <laughs> it's uh we're very excited about it because essentially it, there's a lot it, it's 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 really a new frontier and I gotta tell you being a scientist is so fun because you get to just sort of Decide that there's a frontier and then explore it, um, but that uh, that's what we're doing. And, and essentially, you know, looking at if I give everybody uh, the same word to begin with, and then ask them to generate. uh word, you know, so I give you horse. You might say cow, and then you generate something based on cow. You might say you know hat, and then you might say um, biscuit. You know, you, you might wherever it is that you're going right on your journey. Um, that so there's a number of paradigms uh where people do this one is just simple verbal fluency which has been around a long time there's there are creativity measures like coming up with um uses of objects like a brick for example as like a doorstep versus grinding it up and using it as fairy dust as part of your halloween costume these are you know uh some of the classical uh creativity measures and then something called forward flow that we use a lot which is a lot like what I just described, where you just start with a word and you generate a, an associate and then an associate and then an associate and you keep going. Um, but the notion is uh, that the ways that people generate words um, and, and that they sort of serially generate concepts uh, differs and that some people will stick all you know, within a, in the same semantic cluster, right? Some people are gonna start exploring out of that cluster. Some people are gonna end up doing a circle back to where they began. Some people are gonna be going back and forth between two regions of, of semantic space. Some people are gonna go directly to a distant point um, and then do sort of meandering, you know, back and forthy things once they get there. Uh, these are all different potential shapes of thought. And, and, one of the th- and, and so one of the things that's really cool about this is once you apply, uh, once you spatialize that essentially, you can use machine learning tools that look at geometry of shapes and identify, okay, which kinds of people, what's sort of the standard way to think? What, what's kind of a, a standard shape of thought versus a non-standard or, or sort of a different way of thinking, a different thinker? Um, how do how do different shapes of thought and different, um, com- different attributes of a shape relate to things like creative ability or many other abilities you know uh whether it's uh in sort of the intelligence realm or um the artistic realm perhaps
0: so what have you found of, i'm sorry to interrupt so what have you found about um what shape do the most creative people think in
1: we're just at the
0: beginning of just this. starting we're all just, just starting.
1: questions right we're still building this um but we and we also want to ask questions about do different people's shapes of thought have something to do with how they would interact with each other like do i want do i oh do I, I think 100 percent. do i tend right do i tend to Um, want to find people who who think in the same way that I do in terms of how they explore, you know, how they think through the semantic uh, space um, versus am I better off? Do I do I actually want to find people who have a complementary shape of thought to mine? Right. Like I might be Mm -hmm. doing big leaps and they're doing small ones. And maybe that's um, that maybe we work better together than, you know, two people with a more uh, a
0: more similar uh, shape of thought. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about the idea of uh, like kind of like an anchoring point and then people like kind of jump jumping around and then like returning uh, the yeah. same the same idea uh, in like developmental uh, like psychology like when like when you're a kid like if you if your mom is like the center of the world, and yeah. you're going out in, to explore the world and then you kind of uh, reach your own set limit and then you return back to your mom and you go oh okay this is this is the point that i'm safe at and then you can venture out a little bit farther and farther so i wonder if people with that structure shape of thought um would be more i don't know i don't think conservative is the right word um but would act uh in a way like uh in parallel to that like kind of have a central anchoring point and then kind of explore and then once they reach their uh their limit then kind of come back and and rest for a minute and rejuvenate and then go back.
1: It's fascinating. And what's cool is we're just, we, it's a, it's an entirely new individual difference, right? That is so cool variable. Uh, And so we we have the sense that there's a lot that um, we, we are going to learn about it that we haven't even guessed about it um, yet. Uh, We want, we want to kind of build it and see what it does. Um, And so that's uh, that's where we are.
0: Do you think we could touch on uh, religious representations? Perhaps quickly. Yeah. Quickly, yeah. sorry. And you cut me off, because I'm gonna I'm gonna wanna keep on going. So okay. I should go at the hour. Okay, yeah. great. Do you think quickly we could? Yeah, go for it. Uh, um what 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 is what is this about? Uh like how how are, how are we trying to um concept yeah. uh study of concept, conceptualizations of the divine compare of people like with traditional religious backgrounds or not or just wh- yeah. what work are you doing so cool yeah no this
1: is an ongoing project as well so this is something where we're looking at we're using a, a method called representational similarity analysis with neuroimaging with fmri essentially what what we're doing is looking at patterns in the brain when people represent god and patterns in the brain when people represent other kinds of entities so especially real entities like a parent like Mm -hmm. one of their parents Mm -hmm. or a historical figure that they know is real Mm -hmm. um, or a current um, celebrity that they know is real Mm -hmm. or um, fictional entities like superman for example Mm -hmm. and the idea is you know so what is it when people when people say they're they're representing god or thinking of god what 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 is that right and and one thing that this representational similarity analysis tool allows us to do is to ask that question in terms of, okay, how much does the representation of God overlap with the representation of real things, real entities, real people, um, versus say fictional uh, entities or or, or fictional people? Uh, And how might that differ um, by your level of belief? So one of the things that we've already seen, even just in the behavioral side of this study, is that it's very much the case that non-believers... Are rep- represent have a representation of God, they just don't believe in that representation, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not that they just don't see anything when you say, mm-hmm. you know, God, they, mm-hmm. they see something, right? And mm-hmm. actually, what we're finding is that what they see is similarly anthropomorphic, they see a person, uh, similarly anthropomorphic to what uh, the believers are seeing, right? So, there's even some similarities there. Um, but the question that we want to ask at the neural level is, how similar. Uh, are the representations of the religious versus less religious people maybe it's the case that everybody's seeing basically the same thing but just believing in that thing differently or maybe mm-hmm there are some fundamental differences like, okay, they're all anthropomorphic, right? But maybe I'm uh, if, if, if I'm not as much of a believer, my neural representation of God looks a lot more like my neural representation of Superman. And if you are more of a believer, your neural representation of God looks a lot more like your neural representation of one of your parents, right? Uh, because that's a, like a real person that you have like an actual relationship in, with. And maybe that's how a believer feels or you know conceptualizes. Uh, conceptualizes God. So that's, um, that's one of the things we're working on.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, I think that's a cool place to end.
1: Yeah, right on. Well, thanks, Max. Uh, and uh, it was a lot of fun talking.
0: I really appreciate it. I I thoroughly enjoyed that. Right on. Okay. Um, well, two, yeah. two things, uh, if, if I can ask anything, um, would be would be one, um, if you could help me at all in sharing this maybe with your network. Um, I don't know if you use LinkedIn or I, I don't really use any type of socials. I'm trying to, even though I think find it cringe just to promote it and get, because I think this is worth, a worthwhile conversation. I think people's lives, people would enjoy this conversation to hear it. So if you could assist me in sharing this in any way, Um, I, I would probably, I'm probably going to post, I can, I'll email you when, um, when I'm going to post, uh, on LinkedIn and Apple music and Spotify. So if you could do anything in sharing your, with your network, that would be super appreciated. And, and also either
1: I've, I've tried to, you know, uh, but, 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 but there are people there that I I, I have,
0: I, I can share it. Yes. Okay, cool. And then I don't know if there's anyone else, um, that you think would be interested in talking to me or uh that it would be worthwhile for me to talk to or that would be willing to talk talk to me um whether that's a, a fellow student or, or a student or or anyone that you can you think of
1: yeah i don't know if you've chatted with bryce hubner uh no D- dr hubner uh he's a, he's in uh philosophy um he, he'd be a fascinating guy to talk to uh depending on your interests you know in there but check him out bryce hubner but obviously Bryce,
0: Bryce. Huebner. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think maybe because so, sometimes the cold emailing uh, people are super hesitant. Would you is it is it asking too much for you to say, hey, I just talked with Max? I
1: mean, I might I think I think Bryce will write you back. Okay great.
0: Uh, I, yeah, so, okay, great. Bryce Hubner. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. I think that's your best bet. Thank you.
0: I, I appreciate yeah. that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, Thank you.
0: So. All right. Awesome. Good Thank you so much. There. I really appreciate it. Nice meeting you. Have a good one. See
1: you.